trains and workers council met for 12 long hours and said we will not recognize the British Army's powers. This city is the people's, we reclaim it now as ours. It ever was and shall be ever still. To the people's plea, we care no more for their martial law than the British Army curse for you and me. Than the British Army curse for you and me. I'm April. And I'm Kian, and this is Bottom Dog, the story of the Limerick Soviet 1990. In the last episode, we covered the events that led to the Limerick trade unions calling a general strike in April 1919. But in this episode, we're going to look at how the strike elevated into a Soviet with workers uh, taking over control of the city, producing food, setting prices, and even creating their own police force and currency. So before we move on, perhaps, Kian, you should do a bit of a recap from episode one. Yeah, so in a nutshell, you had uh, the very rapid growth of the radical trade union, the ITGWU, led by the socialist Sean Dowling. In 1919, the, the match that sparked the whole thing was the death of Republican trade unionist Robert Byrne. Thousands came out for his funeral, which the, the British army then saw as a provocation. And in retaliation, they declared martial law in the city. Dowling then led the workers in the Cleves factory out on strike. And we ended the episode with a meeting on Sunday, April the 13th, where all the rest of the trade unions voted to come out on strike too, starting the very next morning. Can I just say, before we go into this cliff, that April 13th was the birth of the Limerick Soviet and also the birth of me. So two very significant days in socialist history. Not going to make the cut. <laughs> Go. At five o'clock in the morning, they put up their first proclamation, which was calling on the workers of the city to go on strike in response to the imposition of martial law. And what absolutely fascinates me about it is that at a time before, obviously before social media, before WhatsApp, before Facebook, uh, where most people didn't have phones, there probably would have been about six telephones in Limerick, if even that, that it was possible to mobilize 14, 15,000 workers who just didn't turn up for work in the morning as a result of a proclamation that went up around the town at five o'clock in the morning. That to me is quite extraordinary, that kind of that spontaneity, but also that kind of organisational ability to be able to communicate something as big as that to an entire city within a matter of hours, you know, printing it in the printing press they had access to in Cornmarket Row. And then at five o'clock in the morning, fellas running around sticking this poster up around the city. So that was local playwright Mike Finn. What happened then? So the Trades Council, which brought together the, the main local trade unions, they basically set themselves up as a, a strike committee. I talked to Liam Cattle, who literally wrote the book on the Limerick Soviet, about what they did. I think the council would have identified very early on that there were a number of needs that had to be met and managed and controlled and operated. Early on, uh, they formed four subcommittees of members of the Trades Council. They were responsible for food, which obviously was critical, because if you cannot feed yourself or feed the population that's going to bring pressure on you uh, they had what they called a vigilance committee which was looking after the, the good order and running of the city they had a propaganda committee which was very much a term of the of the time 1919 today we would probably call it publicity and PR and they also had a finance committee because obviously that was going to be a crucial factor in in people being able to maintain themselves 
And this strike committee was pushed along by events. Needs came up, they had to address them. And both Mike uh, Finn and Liam Cahill explained how food was the first major issue to pop up. And here's a clip, first from Mike, then Liam, about, in particular, bread. They suddenly realise, well, how do you feed people? It's one thing to, if everything's closed, how do people, how do people get fed? And there are accounts of, of uh, you know, women turning up at the strike headquarters, the uh, Mechanics Institute, almost on the first day going, OK, guys, we're, we're going to get bread for my children, you know. And maybe lesser people might have capitulated and said, OK, maybe we'll make this strike a one-day or a two-day strike and then we'll go back because they, we've, we've bitten off more than we could chew. But they obviously knuckled down and said, OK, we've started this, we'll finish it, we, we, we will organise stuff. And so they started, as we know, issuing their own permits, so allowing bakeries to open for a few hours every day and bake bread. There was a ship in the docks with 7,000 tonnes of grain from Canada, and that was unloaded, and the bakeries were opened up. So bread, which was a very important part of the stable diet of people, that became available. Okay, so they reopened the bakeries to make bread, but what about everything else? Yeah, so they they had to smuggle in the rest of the food. Effectively, Limerick City was under siege yet again, this time by the British Army. But the trade unions came up with ingenious ways around that, as Mike explains in this clip. So some of the food was brought across, sometimes at at night, um, under the cover of darkness, in in boats across from the north side, from the Tomagate side into the city that way. And there are also accounts, rather colourful accounts, of funerals coming into the city from the the city home, from St Camillus's, I guess, what we now call St Camillus's, the funerals coming into the city, hearses with coffins full of food. How often that happened, we don't know, may have happened just once, but I mean, it's it's just a great picture of food being smuggled in under the noses of the British in coffins. That sounds like a movie. Coffins full of food, very gothic. Yeah, it's fa- it's fantastic. Uh, um, I loved it. But but then, of course, you get the food in, and what you do, you have to distribute it. So they had to set up food depots across the city, and they also allowed some shops to open up, but with controlled prices. What they had to do is they established four depots in various parts of the city, and responsibility for the running of those depots was allocated, each one of them, to a a city councillor. And the idea was that these were the depots where food would be received and then food distributed. And when we say food for for working people in those days, really what you're talking about is, is bread, potatoes, vegetable, butter and margarine maybe, milk and tea. As soon as they opened up the shops on the same day that they announced or decided that they would allow shops to open up for a certain amount of time, they would have realised immediately that some people would exploit the situation because obviously the economic laws of supply and demand would come into play. So they decided that they would set the prices. So they literally, they, again, with their trusty printing, printing press, they printed out controlled prices and they posted these up around the town and when they gave a permit to a shopkeeper or a baker to open say you can open tomorrow from you know uh, eight in the morning until 10 and sell bread but you can sell it at this price uh, to make sure that people weren't exploiting the situation and in fact i think that they actually reduced the price of bread that was been sold so they seem to have a real control over the over the the city okay so they set prices that was pretty far-sighted 
Yeah, and they, as Mike says, they actually brought down the price of food. And there was an interesting story from a few years later from the brewery Soviet mills, um, where the, the workers occupied a factory uh, in County Limerick, and, and they ran it themselves. And during the course of that Soviet, they actually managed to bring down the price of bread, reduce the working week, and increase wages all at the same time. Okay, so it can show how much better production actually can be done when run democratically rather than run for profit. Yeah, exactly. But um, it was unfortunately it was slightly different in the Limerick Soviet because the workers weren't directly running the shops themselves. The shops were still run for profit, but tightly controlled by the, the strike committee. Um, and in fact, they set up their own Red Guard to implement those price controls. Um, and they were the people who, you know, made sure that the queues outside shops stayed orderly. They made sure the shops that were open were adhering to the prices I- involved. And I guess they were acting as a kind of a as a kind of a police force. So that's what the food and the vigilance committee did. But Lee mentioned a propaganda committee and a finance committee. What were they doing? Yeah, well, so the the I'll just take the propaganda committee first. They had two jobs. Um, one was the production of their own newspaper and posters. And secondly, they were also talking to journalists from around the country and around the world. They printed their own newspaper, a daily newspaper called the Workers' Bulletin, which I think they issued every evening at about five o'clock, telling everybody what was going on, informing people what shops were open, uh, I guess probably telling people what uh, prices the food was meant to be and so on, and just encouraging people um, and explaining that the situation was under control and things were going well and explaining that, uh, you know, that the that they were hoping that they would get backing for a national strike from Dublin and so on. So they were keeping the strikers, keeping their comrades informed of activities right through the week. And were the papers being produced? Yeah, yeah. so the Limerick leader at least got a permit from the strike committee saying they could open up. Um, I actually saw that, that edition of the paper that had a big banner across the top saying printed by permission of the strike committee. What a brilliant piece of history. And so outside of Limerick, was all of this being picked up by the papers? Yeah, um... It was obviously in all the national newspapers, though vetted by the British Army. But Mike also explained how it ended up in the newspapers right across the world. As luck would have it, there was a, an air race was meant to happen. Um, one of the English newspapers, I think it was the Daily Mail, put up £10,000 as a prize for the first person who would fly across the Atlantic. Because nobody had flown across the Atlantic at this point in 1919. You know, air travel was in its infancy. And one man, um, a guy called Captain Wood, Major Wood, uh, an Englishman had decided he would fly from Limerick to Newfoundland. But unfortunately, he didn't make it here. He took off from England and crashed in the Irish Sea just off Wales and was rescued, but his plane was totaled. But as a result of his attempt... Quite a few international uh, journalists had arrived in Limerick to cover his departure from Limerick, and then they looked around them and uh, looked around and saw hey, he's not coming, and we we've wasted our time coming here. We don't have a story to tell the international uh, press, and suddenly they found themselves in the middle of a of a Soviet. So they covered that instead. So the word they'd actually get around quite quite a lot. Um, one of the journalists was working for the Associated Press, and his column or his reports were syndicated to like three hundred newspapers in America. So little ordinary sort of provincial newspapers in America were reading about the Limerick Soviet. It was on the front page all over the world: Australia, America, Canada, all over the uh, all over Europe as well. Limerick all over the news. Yeah, um, and it, it worked its way into the history as well. Limerick Soviet was actually the first of its kind to, to organise and issue its own currency. They printed their own money? Yeah. Obviously, there would have been a shortage of money. They weren't working, so they weren't getting paid. Um, some of the unions nationally did give money, but not enough. The Soviet took a very pragmatic and very practical response, which is that they printed their own money. 
uh, which uh, is, in the proper sense of the word, unique in the annals of working class history. Uh, that they issued this currency. In those days, it was 10 shillings, 5 shillings, 1 shilling, which I've worked out would be about 30 euro, 15 euro, and 3 euro in, in present day terms. You can actually see this currency, in fact, as part of the centenary celebrations. This Soviet shilling is being reissued. It was a simple piece of paper and it read Limerick, April 1919. General strike against British militarism. The workers of Limerick promised to pay the bearer one shilling. The Limerick Trades and Labour Council. Was this currency accepted by people? Yeah, um, the trade unions had the power behind them. They had the food. They had the promise of uh, support, of financial support from around the country uh, to back up the currency and to ensure that shops did accept it. So obviously the shops were incorporated into this Soviet. But what do the major factories around Limerick, like the, the big bosses that own the big factories, what do they think of this? Well, yeah, they, they were forced to accept it too because what could they really do? But they were behind the scenes. They were working with the British military to try to undermine the strike, as, as Liam explained to me. What happens, of course, in with employers is, uh, you know, the tills are no longer ringing. The money is not coming in anymore in the way that it used to. And so they start getting concerned. And I think after about a week, they began to be concerned about what's going to happen here. How long is this going to go on? And they began to start looking for, and Cleves in particular, you know, who had a thriving business in terms of butter, condensed milk, chocolate and so on. Uh, they began to be concerned about how long this was going to go on. And Cleves were a company uh, you'd have to say that were never, let's put it this way, overly sympathetic towards their workforce. It wasn't exactly a, a great place to work. The wages were very low. The conditions were poor. So they began to say, well, look, let's get this over. Okay, they won't take British military permits, but maybe we could give them permits. And, you know, if you give us booklets we of permits, we'll give them to our workforce. Uh, and that was the initial compromise. Now, that was shot down in flames within hours by the strike committee because if they weren't going to take uh, permits from British military, they were certainly not going to take them from their employers. Okay, so this class aspect of, of this is really interesting because it started out as an opposition to the British military, but actually they were opposed to also the Irish bosses as well and that whole oppressive class. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a crucial part of this, I think. Um, in future episodes, we'll look more at the broader situation in Ireland. But a key part of what was happening was that people were fighting not just against British imperialism, but also against Irish capitalism. And what was the British military's response to all this? Well, they couldn't really do much. Um, in reality, they had lost the power. Um, if they were to, to go in all guns blazing... Um, it would have become a major scandal across the globe. But, but more importantly, it would have sparked further revolts right across Ireland and perhaps into the UK as well. Um, so, so they mainly stayed in their barracks and let the Soviet have the run of the place. But just as a segue into our next clip, there was some confrontations and the big one was Easter weekend. And so uh, coming up to Easter Sunday, which would have been the end of the first week, something like a thousand young men and women in their Sunday best clothes went out of the city and they went to Cahardavon Heights and they, they had an open air Cayley up there. I think the plan, there's differing opinions as to whether there actually was a hurling match or whether it was just a guise. But the plan was that about a thousand of them would go out of the city and come back in and confront the military 
barricades on, on Sarsfield Bridge without permits as a kind of a challenge to, to the military. We march to the bridge where the soldiers stand in line in defence of a realm that is neither yours nor mine and bow to a king just to earn our daily crust but we'll bend the knee no more enough so bloody now so they arrived i guess marching in in some kind of formation in towards the bridge the soldiers there were slightly rattled by that the tank which was normally situated i think outside what's now duns um at the end of on the southern end of sashley bridge that trundled along, turned and came onto the bridge a little bit. Um, there was a machine gun in the boat club, in Shannon Rowing Club, and that swung around. And uh, some RIC men, the policemen, came down, ran down from William Street Barracks to reinforce the barricade. But all the workers were doing was they would march up in single file up to the barricade, demand to be let into their city. When they didn't have a permit, they'd be refused. And they would turn around and go back in a big circle and go back and do it again. So it was a kind of a, uh, an act of civil disobedience to be constantly demand and be uh, denied access to their own city. And while they were doing all of this, they were singing songs like the Red Flag and so on. That's fantastic. I love that image. Yeah, it's, it must have been pretty terrifying as well to have the, the tank there, the, the machine gun pointed at you. But people had that sense of strength. They weren't going to take it anymore. And they also knew that they had support amongst the soldiers too. Okay, so how do we know this, that they'd built up connections? Yeah, it seems that there was some fraternising, as they call it, between the, the soldiers and the people of Limerick. Um, the, the workers' papers of the time actually had articles in it explaining how the British soldiers, or the Tommies Denied as they were called, the weren't their enemies, uh, that they too were oppressed. And one regiment of the army actually had to be sent home. And this regiment that had been sent home because they were too friendly with the people of Limerick. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be the case. And they were letting people in and out without their permits and that sort of stuff. Uh, so for the Limerick uh, workers at the Cayley, what happened at the end of the day? Did they get back in? Yeah, so they, they had a big session. Uh, they slept in people's homes in Thomengate on the floor of the Temperance Hall. Um, and in the morning, they snuck back in. And of course, the British soldiers must have thought that they really had caught these people out because how would they get back into the city without permits? But they had that planned as well. They went out to um, to the Long Pavement Railway Station, which is just beyond Thomengate, a little to the north of it. And uh, they boarded a train that was scheduled train coming in, I think, from Ennis to Limerick. Uh, normally, there'd probably be about four people, if even that, getting on that train to go into the city. And suddenly, there's about 200 people get on the train. It got into uh, Limerick Railway Station about 10 minutes later, and um, all of the strikers got into, for want of a better word, uh, revelers. <laughs> they jumped out. There were, there were soldiers on the platform trying to stop them getting into the city that way or look for their permits. And instead, the, about 200 people jumped out the offside of the train and uh, ran, you know, scattered along the tracks and into the city. And, and uh, they obviously got one over on the British that way. From the that's the end of episode two. In episode three, we'll look at how this revolution was betrayed and the role of the National Trade Union leaders and Sinn Féin. Thanks to Alan Parry for letting us use his song, The Limerick Soviet, at the start, and to Post Punk Podge for the music throughout the episode. Thanks also to Mike Finn and Liam Cahill for the interviews used in this episode, and also to actor Darren Marr for the dramatisations. This podcast was hosted by me, Kian Prendival, and my co-host April Scully. Sound mixing was done by Marty Walsh, 
Thanks to Ray Burke of Wired FM for giving us some help and studio time there, and to Danny Scott for regular feedback and assistance throughout production. The song you are listening to is by David Blake from the play Bread Not Profits. Finally, if you are enjoying this podcast, please tell a friend about it. If they don't know how to subscribe to a podcast, please help them. We are relying on word of mouth to help us spread this story. If you can, please also leave a review on the iTunes store. This helps us reach a bigger audience, and every person who leaves a review will be entered into a draw, and the winner will get a prize of a limited edition Limerick Soviet t-shirt and badge.